I'm Karen Dumaine, the professional lead for DuoD. Before my co-lead, Paul Taylor-Pitt, left, we recorded this fabulous podcast series talking to world leaders and experts in OD. The DuoD podcast is brought to you by NHS Employers in partnership with NHS England. I'm Karen Dumaine. And I'm Paul Taylor-Pitt. Welcome to the fifth episode of Doing OD in the NHS, The Power of Possibility, a podcast series from Do OD. In episode four, Vilma Nicolaidou gave us an insight into doing OD in higher education, and we realised our contexts aren't so different. Today we're really pleased to be joined by Naomi Stanford, who brings a wealth of experience in both organisation development and organisation design, which she's written at length on. Naomi talks about the impact of hybrid working and how we can hold space to explore the fundamental question of what work is and how we can reconsider what is important using design principles to shape our workplaces. The way people do organisation design is going to change incredibly, but we don't quite know how yet. So I see all sorts of technologies which allow you to map the organisation, and then interpret it somehow. But there is a danger in that, that if you start mapping the organisation through technology, you're not getting the qualitative feeling of it. So somewhere along the line, I think that technology and anthropology will will become twin tracks of a continuous organisation design process, which is miles away from a project management, program management approach. Also, the um, triggers for change will change because you see it in things like mass movements. In in the book that's just been published, there's a little um, cameo, essentially, of Amazon designing a new logo. And then the Twitter people got hold of it and shredded it on Twitter and Amazon had to redesign it in response to nobody in their organisation. And, and they'd also done masses of the traditional market research on, is this logo OK? And, and you can see that the impact on, on organisations of people completely outside of their organisation can have a huge effect on them. So that whole keeping track of what's going on outside, I think, is also going to change the way people think about organisation design. For two years since that day, engraved on my memory of March the 23rd, when we went into lockdown, um, at that point I was living in central London. And um, over the course of the next few months, the um, my daughter went back from maternity leave to working from home with four children in the house because the schools were shut down and her husband working in the house so six people and the and the um two youngest ones who were then age three and one were at two different nursery schools and the nursery school shut down and you know the whole there was a whole chaos and I thought right now I've got to give her much more support so I moved to within half a mile of her house and took on a kind of what I now call child development and family support role. 
So this morning I've taken two kids to school. I've received instructions on maths, homework, blah, blah, blah. Um, because it seemed to me at that point that to, in this tremendous disruption of the pandemic, it really required people to change utterly their way of thinking about what was important and where, to, where their activity was best placed. And, and for me, it was around that family support. And what's interesting is I've subsequently started to think about um, where you can have immediate impact in kind of the world in a philosophical sense. And there's a lovely quote from John Kabat-Zinn, the um, Zen guy, who says, the little things, they aren't little. And, And that's been a very reassuring phrase to me that... You, it's like throwing a minute little stone in the pond, but it does ripple out and you don't know what the impact is. And so that that changed. And then I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do something completely different. So I went into, um, started to do a garden design course. And then I wrote a blog on garden design because I realized garden design is exactly the same as organization design, but it's plants instead of people. <laughs> <laughs> And the plants are equally difficult. The plants need the right environment, careful nurturing, encouragement, and all the rest of it. Um, so that was that's been terrific fun, and um, and so that's a, a, an interest. But then I also got interested, which is actually one that I'm pursuing now, which is related to organisation design, is how people talk about death and dying in organisations, and both in a literal sense of, you know, my colleague died from COVID or, you know, I've I've got long COVID or whatever, but also in a metaphorical sense, our organisation in the pandemic has completely gone. We're not here anymore. How does that feel for those people left? And, you know, getting to terms with new lifestyles quite often, like a new lifestyle of hybrid working or a new lifestyle, in my case, of um, doing something utterly different. and I think that's, I think we've reached a point in organisational kind of history when the, that shock to the system is could be really useful if we took advantage of it. And, you know, to become more compassionate. You know, you, you had a very compassionate, practical human response to your daughter's situation. So, you know, I love, <laughs> I love the title of child development and family support because I was thinking about, in organisations, if we changed those words and we said it was about people development and people support, I wonder if that would be enough as a compassionate response to how people are. Do you feel like there's, have you seen more humanity blossoming in organisations during the pandemic? Well, I think there are two things in that. I think labels are critically important. How you label something sort of becomes what it is. And if you change a label, you can, to some extent, or even to a great extent, change what it is. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, so so that's, that's one aspect. Have I seen more compassion? Well, I've seen lovely potential th- seeds of it. You know, I love the fact that Zoom because you're looking at tiles of people and it, and Zoom doesn't care whether you're the executive or the 
junior intern just jiggles around all the um, tiles, so putting you in any order, and then it swishes them around again, and you never know what grade anyone is if you're new to the meeting. And and there's no way of um, organising a Zoom screen in a hierarchy, so you don't necessarily have to feel deferential. And then what I also love is the fact that, you know, I was in one meeting with a, a director general, and there's this sort of in the background smoke. Oh my God, I've left the pizza in the oven. And you know, the 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 you'd never get that in the office. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are lovely examples of humanity and and the other side of the people in the that you're in day-to-day kind of formal things, which are informal. And I think that's very helpful. You, and I hope we don't lose that in the kind of going back to the office situation. And did you finish your book, Naomi, through lockdown? You know, was that one of the projects you were working on? Because I'm really curious about how you see that applying now as we go forward, particularly in the NHS, and we're, you know, still in a wave of COVID and it's your five principles and how we might apply some of that. Yeah, I did finish it in lockdown. I started it in September 2020 and I finished it in, I submitted the final draft in May 2021 and I was just looking at it earlier and a lot of the the threads are all very similar around the impact on people and their interactions. The, the kind of recognition that life is unpredictable, which... And a lot of what we've done is not necessary. And I, I must say I really enjoyed the 23rd of March 2020 because I'd spent the prior six months urging the tech department I was working with to let everybody go on Teams. And they kept on telling me, no, we can't all go on Teams because we have to do a slow rollout, we have to train everybody up, we have to um, you know, see how it's going, monitor progress. So I I gave up. And then on the 23rd of March, everyone's at home, 24th of March, here's Teams for everyone, just get on with it, you'll be fine. And it's just so refreshing and everybody was fine. Good luck. (laughs) It's amazing, wasn't it? We had that. I mean, in the NHS, obviously, things that happened so quickly, you know, rapidly, didn't they? Things that we thought were like virtual appointments Mm. and... So it was amazing, some of that, wasn't it? How technology and what we can do when we collaborate and build those relationships. I was thinking sometimes if you just implement change, people get on with it. And that goes against everything I believe about co-production, co-creation. But actually there was something about the the non-negotiable. You know, for us, clinicians were suddenly forced into doing online appointments, which they'd resisted for quite a while. Now that I'm not saying that's a good way to do it, but there is also something about the resilience that people had and the agility to just go, right, now we're working like this. We don't need a Gantt chart. We don't need a project plan. We don't need a a working group. We're just doing it. But how would that fit with your principles of organisation design, Naomi? Because that do you build in, in that planning process the unexpected? I think that's a good question and one that I'm kind of thinking about in terms of this death and dying thing, I think you need governance. But what we've ended up with, you can see it in sort of health and safety. The, the, and there's someone once told me this great phrase, you hit the target and miss the point. The, the 
the governance frameworks are far too unwieldy to allow for emergence. So somehow or other, I think where organization design would benefit is taking a, a very different look at governance frameworks. Like what is the minimum to, that we need to maintain appropriate levels of whatever it is that we're looking for? And I don't know if you're familiar with the rules of flocking. The, um, you know, the, the birds flock with only three rules, steer for alignment, follow the leader, steer for direction. Well, if we could think of three rules for governance that were completely clear like that, in fact, those would probably do, you know, the, you'd then, you would then allow for the emergence and the unexpected, but not risk, um, you know, huge disaster, essentially. I think what we've done is over-bureaucratize a lot of stuff. Complex situations do not work with bureaucracy. They work with simplicity. I love that three simple rules. I was just saying it really resonates with me because during the first wave, I worked on the national health and wellbeing resources and trying to get that out, which was much needed to NHS staff. And I think what one of the things I would add is that we had a shared purpose and an immediate shared purpose. So that helped. But really resonating with those three sort of simple rules of governance. It was like people leapt over governance. They ignored it. They made decisions. They worked together because there was a time imperative and there was a really strong need. And it really worked. And that collaboration between people and then people ringing people up and saying, we need this now. Can we just do it? And yes. And, you know, and I, so I really love that, that three rules of governance, you know, and how we can simplify that. Because I what I fear is that, because obviously the NHS has continued and we're still in the wave of COVID, that we've gone back to some of that bureaucracy. And I think a challenge for our people that we uh, work with, our NHS OD community, is how do they continue, you know, to work with that with that governance, that bureaucracy, and what can they do to enable some of that simplicity? Well, I think that's where the design aspect carries through because you can't have three rules of sim- of simple rules of governance and a reward system that rewards you for not following them because they want bureaucracy. But you have to then align, you know, reward people for following three rules of governance, not for missing their target or whatever it is. And that sort of um, ability to see where one, one, I'll call it a system, one system interferes with another system is is quite a difficult thing to see. You, you know, you can't. It's difficult to see where um, a reward system might impede some innovation. So, and I was talking to a group from um, of leaders from another government department, and they said there's a tremendous fear of failure here. And I said, well, have you looked at the reward systems? Because probably you're you're being rewarded for not failing rather than for learning from failure or, you know, using failure as a positive. The the connections between the parts, if you want to change things, are part of design thinking. For someone who, like me and many of our OD community, has come from a development background rather than a design background, how would you synthesize some of the concepts of design thinking so that we've got a place to start? 
I don't think you can divorce development and design. And that's what took me into design in the first place. <laughs> it's I originally, in my first career, trained as a teacher in the public sector. And then, then I ended up training uh, through a securities route. I ended up training people to be business studies teachers who'd come from the private sector. So I was training them to be teachers. And then I thought, this is completely ridiculous. I'm training people to be business studies teachers, and I haven't really worked in business. I mean, I had like in vacations or just part-time. So I applied for a job and um, in a training department, which I got in a big organization. And then I spent many years in training departments until I realized that the training was had virtually nil effect on organization performance at an organizational level. You, you, know, you, could, you, you could teach people, say, time management, and they could manage their time, but that doesn't make any difference to the organization. The, so, and then I thought, well, what is going to start making a difference to the organization? If, if training isn't, and you often see that. I mean, the leadership group I was talking with said, you know, we're learning all these things on leadership development training. We can't put it into practice. We go back to the office fired up to do stuff and nothing. The conditions aren't conducive to it. And that, <clears throat> that took me out of what was then kind of the development into design of trying to look at the context, the kind of formal context that could be changed to enable development to happen. And you can start to see that in development. If you talk your question, Paul, about if the developers looked at context and said, what is impeding the development they were interested in? And an analogy I often use is on road traffic regulations so so if you're a skilled driver and you're you live in england you drive on the left hand side of the road and you follow all those rules now if you go to france you're still a skilled driver you've got a completely different context you drive on the right hand side of the road the context is different but also the culture of driving on the right hand side of the road in france is also slightly different and, and then if you go and drive in Jordan or Syria, where both countries I've visited, the traffic regulations, they have left and right-hand side of the roads, but sort of in some areas of the countries, you don't know which is which. And they have no signage, and the culture of driving is completely different. <laughs> and the, the context drives behaviour. And if you look at world, um, I think it's OECD or or it's traffic statistics, you'll find that countries with the least traffic regulation of signage and what have you have the most traffic accidents because the context is driving the behavior and the outcome. The systems and processes and the kind of, for better, want of a better definition, the hard things shape how you can behave. So a hierarchy shapes attitudes. And you've probably felt it yourself. You know, you go in and speak to your senior manager and you actually feel different. 
Now, if you were in the park run with that senior manager and you didn't know that senior manager was a senior manager, you'd have a different response to that person. And, and I think organizations impose structures and systems which force people into particular directions, not necessarily consciously, but they have that impact. Because not many people would want to say, I'm terrified of my senior manager. But inside, they feel a little bit scared because that person has a power play over them. And, and whether that person actually wants a power play over someone else is also a questionable thing. They may not, but it's still implied in the structures and processes and the reward mechanisms and the pay scales and promotion routes and all the rest of it. So I think, to go back to your original question, Paul, developers' start point is what is the system looking like that is impeding, or not necessarily impeding, supporting what we're doing? You know, where is it being helpful? And then what would be the next step from that? Because it really resonates, I think, with, uh, you know, as, as you know, with OD and development and looking at a context and a system. So from an org design perspective, what would be your next step then? So you've looked at the system. You can see perhaps where it's impeding or there are some challenges. What are some helpful org design that you might apply? Well, I'm doing some work with a group of service designers and business architects, so technology people. And <laughs> they're great because they're totally uninterested in people. They just want the kind of workflow tough software to <laughs> operate properly. <laughs> but they're not totally uninterested in people because they can understand that people have to use their systems. And so a lot of the conversation is, is about how to engender in service architects and service designers and business architects and what have you, that interplay of, of humanity into what they're designing, not, not in the kind of slightly sterile method of user experience personas and all that, but the actual day-to-day -day use by users. And, and that is making me, and I think it's repeated in the book at several points, to think outside of your sphere of known participants in your piece of work. Include people who are systems engineers, include people who are legal advisors, and include people who are um, customer experience product designers or whatever, that, that have, have the system knowledge that you don't have, but you can complement with the kind of people elements that you have. And if you know, if one of the places where I really learned this, the value of this was because I hadn't in about seven years ago had much experience of service design or product design or any of these um, software development things. And I got a job where it was I had to work with all of those people. And it was really helpful on both for both of us, both sets of people, to, for me to see what they were trying to get to and for me them to see what I was trying to get to. And that has kept uh, my interest in making those communities much more closely aligned, I think is really is essential, particularly as we move more into um, online-ness. I, I had an experience this week of trying to contact 
from the new medical practice. I had to change medical practice. And the, they're terribly under siege, which is understandable. You know, the red notice saying on the website saying, please don't contact us unless it's essential. If you want to contact us, go through, click this and do an online e-consult. Which I, so I did that, which is an interminable number of unnecessary pages if you just want one question answered. So that's an interesting design thing. Um, because it, there wasn't a front screen that says, do you have, just have one question or do you want a full consultation? You know, so I found that whole thing really intriguing. But that, that behind the scenes, that would be a useful conversation to have of, with the designers of the e-consult thing. And then interestingly, if I just go down this road a bit, when I registered, they said you can, you, you need to link up your NHS thing with one of these things, health error or patient access or whatever. But it didn't say which was which or, or what was the value of one over the other. So you're kind of adrift. You'd press on number eight not knowing or number five not knowing. <clears throat> and then it turns out that one of them is different because one is a, you could only prefer prescriptions, but one is for also making appointments, but you don't know which is which because they just send you a raw list. Do you ever feel like you're in the matrix that you can see the code of the world when you look at a GP website and you go, oh, this is a design issue. And do you ever feel compelled to then intervene in that? Or would you just go, yeah, well, someone somewhere might do that because you can't do everything. Uh, well, sometimes I think I'm in a huge comedy of errors. And um, <laughs> the... the Quite often I convert the experiences into a blog. And I am thinking of a of a a tech blog, not this week, but e-consult and what have you would just be incidental because because I've had a lot of those sorts of tech things this week. And I think when you blew you blew up both Paul and I's mind, I think, a bit when you're talking about digital twinning and mirror and I think for our OD community in the NHS, that's kind of would be a new way of thinking. Or for me, I was thinking, wow, what does that mean? And how can we really use technology? I just wonder if you could just say a little bit more about some of that, because I think it'd be really, uh, it's really interesting. I think you do have to use a lot more technology. Um, but I think our response, though I read another great phrase, that technology advances much faster than faster than culture and that technology advancing much faster than culture is really important to note in um, organization design and development um, because a lot of our responses are in a kind of I'm going this is not pejorative but it might sound an old culture and we haven't got a new culture of working with technologies. And, you know, where there is this sort of glib phrase of go and ask a teenager if you can't log on, that sort of thing. But they do know more than people <laughs> in, in some aspects of technology, but not how it affects organisations that they've never worked in. But you can see in, in the book there are some examples of the sort of unease and the difficulty of getting to grips with the new culture of things like WhatsApp groups, which are internal to an organization, but exclude people deliberately, even though there's a, you know, sort of value of include people. So they set up little WhatsApp tribes and things. And that's, 
a, a culture of how which we don't know how to manage that kind of thing because it's a technology that we're we're not unfamiliar with that we don't know how to deal with it in organizations mm. just thinking about the, the way that time is passing so quickly and you know we started the conversation by talking about oh, wow it's 2022 the ted talk that you did which is going to be 10 years old this year when you talked about the future of work you had these beautiful comparisons where you said is work love made visible or is it a toad squatting on our lives and i'm just wondering in 2022 what conclusions are you coming to about work and the future of work? Um, what am I noticing about the future of work? Well, unfortunately, some divide because I notice, and I, I find that very upsetting, that there's so much emphasis on hybrid working, which is only for people who are essentially desk-bound workers. And I, I think the future of work might might see an unfortunate chasm between people who are unable to work in offices, um, like retailers or delivery drivers or dustbin people or, you know, whatever, and people who can do hybrid working, unless we can think more innovatively about what is work and what do we value. And I think we also potentially could see a much higher value placed on what have traditionally been low-value, low-paid work, because the pandemic exposed how utterly dependent society is on dustbin collectors, on delivery drivers, on retail assistants, on warehouse assistants. Why do we value a chief financial officer more than a dust person? But they are of societal value. They're just different roles. And and I think that that is really important to carry through if we could. I think that then we would stop valuing academic work at the expense of someone who's a plasterer, for example, um, and, and look at a, the kind of value-add contribution to society, whatever it is that you're contributing. And then, then everybody could enjoy their work much more. I can, I can contribute being a plasterer because I'm enjoying plastering. Um, in terms of the, the week, we could get to a four-day week because of the technology, but that would have to be equally applied everywhere, you know, to all types of work, essentially. Mm. I love the weave. I've really taken away that, that weave of thinking about technology and work and how we have the opportunities, that how could we use that increasingly. So people do love their work and people can be their best um, but I know that I on your I think it was your last blog and you put uh, may your cup always be full and I wondered for uh, us in the NHS as people who are working with uh, you know org design and development in the NHS what what might be a bit advice for us or a quote for us something that uh, you know might enrich us or to think about well I've noticed a spike in not just the NHS but in, on buses and supermarkets please do not abuse our staff and it's incredibly difficult for people in these very high stressful jobs working with the public who are also highly stressed. And, and how you get that sort of um, recognition on both sides that we're all feeling really, really under siege in, in a lot of aspects. There's a, I get the thing from the, I don't know if you know it, the really nice website called the Greater Good Science Centre. And they've got an email 
thing today saying, I am a happiness journal journalist. I really want my life back. And a, a very long discussion on how, how can people manage in this situation. And what, what he's ended up saying, which I, I haven't um, integrated it yet, is have the sort of compassion to say most people are doing the best they can in their circumstances. There are very few people I've met in my life who are deliberately saboteurs or, you know, unhelpful. Most people are doing the best they can in their circumstances. And the circumstances are may not be ideal. The circumstances may be horrendously difficult, but they they are showing grit and determination and resilience and 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 there is something about being proud of it. You know, pat yourself on the back and give yourself a hug and and other other people. Be be aware that this is difficult and often the systems are working against you, as we've as we've seen. <laughs> and allowing yourself to be good enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It brings us back in a circle, doesn't it, to compassion, how we started really, the conversation you're talking about humanity and compassion and how that's at the thread of, uh, of all the work that we do. Well, there's a lovely statue in Trafalgar Square of Edith Cavell, who's a nurse, who was a nurse in the Crimea, I think. And on this, I've got a four-face plinth and it's got, have you seen the words on it? Humanity, devotion, fortitude and sacrifice. The four words are absolutely perfect for now. Massive thanks to Naomi for this fascinating discussion. I'm so intrigued about how I can start weaving organisation design principles into some of my thinking. I, I think I've maybe always felt like they're a bit separate or I don't know enough about them. But I love how Naomi makes it feel so integrated and that OD and organisational design are actually hand in hand. So I'm really going to think about how I might integrate some of that a bit more deliberately. Yes, I think as Naomi says, one complements the other. Organisation design is such an important part of our OD practice, particularly the link to designing our operating systems, our governance and how integral this is. And wow, it really opened up my curiosity and thinking about the future of technology in OD. If technology is advancing faster than culture, what does this mean for our OD work? Thanks so much for listening to this Do OD podcast series. We'd love to know what you think. You can chat to us on Twitter at NHSE underline Do OD or email your thoughts to do.od at nhsemployers.org and Google NHS Do OD for all of the resources on our website. <laughs>